My brothers and sisters, I publicly express my deep gratitude to the Lord, to our remarkable and beloved President Kimball, and to his counselors for my call to the Twelve, among whom I shall be the least long after being the last so ordained. I express love to my wife, who is splendid in every way, my deep appreciation to her, to my goodly and gracious parents, to my children who are committed and who are wise enough to have married committed eternal partners. I realize that my life, of course, must constitute my real acceptance of the apostolic charge. Even so, this poor tongue now seeks to speak in praise and testimony of our divine Redeemer. Whether descriptively designated as Creator, Only Begotten Son, Prince of Peace, Advocate, Mediator, Son of God, Savior, Messiah, Author and Finisher of Salvation, King of Kings, I witness that Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven whereby one can be saved. I testify that he is utterly incomparable in what he is, what he knows, what he has accomplished, and what he has experienced. Yet, movingly, he calls us his friends. We can trust, worship, and even adore him without any reservation as the only perfect person to sojourn on this planet. There is none like him. In intelligence and performance, he far surpasses the individual and composite capacities and achievements of all who have lived, live now, and will yet live. He rejoices in our genuine goodness and achievement, but any assessment of where we stand in relation to him tells us that we do not stand at all. We kneel. Can we, even in the depths of disease, tell him anything at all about suffering? In ways we cannot comprehend, our sicknesses and infirmities were born by him even before these were born by us. The very weight of our combined sins caused him to descend below all. We have never been, nor will we be, in depths such as he has known. Thus his atonement made his empathy and his capacity to succor us perfect, for which we can be everlastingly grateful as he tutors us in our trials. There was no ram in the thicket at Calvary to spare him, this friend of Abraham and Isaac. Can those who yearn for hearth or home instruct him as to what it is like to be homeless or on the move? Did he not say in a disclosing moment that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head? Can we really counsel him about being misrepresented, misunderstood, or betrayed, or what it is like when even friends falter or go a-fishing? Can we educate him regarding injustice or compare failures of judicial systems with the giver of the law, who in divine dignity endured its substantive and procedural perversion? And when we feel so alone, can we presume to teach him, who trod the winepress alone, anything at all about feeling forsaken? Cannot the childless who crave children count on his empathy? For he loved children, and said, Of such is the kingdom of heaven. And one by one he blessed them, and then he wept, and prayed unto the Father for them, 
And when he had done this, he wept again. Do we presume to instruct him in either compassion or mercy, even at the apogee of his agony upon the cross? He nevertheless consoled a thief behind him, saying, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Can we excuse our compromises because of the powerful temptations of status-seeking? It was he who displayed incredible integrity as the adversary made him an offer which could not be refused, all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, but he refused. Can we teach him about enduring irony? His remaining possession, a cloak, was gambled for even as he died. Yet the very earth was his footstool. Jesus gave mankind living water so that we shall never thirst again. Yet on the cross he was given vinegar. Can we lecture him on liberty, him who sets us free from our last enemies, sin and death? Can those who revere human freedom yet complain about human suffering ever achieve real reconciliation except through his gospel? Can those concerned with nourishing the poor advise him concerning feeding the multitudes? Can those who are concerned with medicine instruct him about healing the sick? Or can we inform the atoner about feeling the sting of ingratitude when one's service goes unappreciated or unnoticed? Only one leper in ten thanked Jesus, who asked searchingly, But where are the nine? Should those concerned with lengthening the lifespan offer to enlighten the resurrector of all mankind? Can scientists whose discipline brings the discovery of the interweavings in the tapestry of truth instruct the tapestry maker? Should we seek to counsel him in courage? Should we rush forth eagerly to show him our mortal medals, our scratches and our bruises, him who bears his five special wounds? Does not his word of power actually bring entire new worlds into being and cause others to pass away? Yet in the midst of such galactic governance, he interviewed his twelve unhurriedly, one by one, and later called a farm boy in rural New York. Has he not invited us to observe his cosmic craftsmanship in the heavens, that we might see God moving in his majesty and power? But do we not also see him moving in his majesty and power? as each prodigal finally completes his homeward orbit. Though his creations are so vast as to be numberless even to computerized man, has Jesus not told us that the very hairs of our head are numbered? Did not the resurrected Jesus stand by an imprisoned Paul, telling him to be of good cheer and calling him on his mission to Rome? Likewise, Jesus stands by the righteous in all their individual ordeals. Did not this good and true shepherd forego repose after the glorious but awful atonement in order to establish his work among the lost sheep, disobedient in the days of Noah? Did he not then visit still other lost sheep in the Americas, then still other lost sheep? What can we tell him about conscientiousness? 
Indeed, we cannot teach him anything, but we can listen to him. We can love him. We can honor him. We can worship him. We can keep his commandments, and we can feast upon his scriptures. Yes, we who are so forgetful and even rebellious are never forgotten by him. We are his work and his glory, and he is never distracted. Therefore, in addition to my boundless admiration of his achievements and my adoration of him for what Jesus is, knowing that my superlatives are too shallow to do more than echo his excellence, as one of his special witnesses in the fullness of times, I attest to the fullness of his ministry. How dare we treat his ministry as if it were all beatitudes and no declaratives? How myopic it is to view his ministry as all crucifixion and no resurrection. How provincial to perceive it as all Calvary and no Palmyra. All rejection at a village called Capernaum and no acceptance in the city of Enoch. All relapse and regression in ancient Israel and no bountiful with its ensuing decades of righteousness. Jesus Christ is the Jehovah of the Red Sea and of Sinai, the resurrected Lord, the spokesman for the Father at the Theophany at Palmyra, a Palmyra pageant with a precious audience of one. He lives today, mercifully granting unto all nations as much light as they can bear and of their own to teach them. And who better than the light of the world can decide the degree of divine disclosure, whether it is to be flashlights or floodlights. Soon, however, all flesh shall see him together, all knees shall bow in his presence, and all tongues confess his name. Knees which never before have assumed that posture for that purpose will do so then and promptly. Tongues which never before have spoken his name except in gross profanity, will do so then and worshipfully. Soon he who was once mockingly dressed in purple will come again, attired in red apparel, reminding us whose blood redeemed us. All will then acknowledge the completeness of his justice and his mercy, and will see how human indifference to God not God's indifference to humanity, accounts for so much suffering. Then we will see the true story of mankind, but not through glass darkly. The great military battles will appear as mere bonfires which blaze briefly, and the mortal accounts of the human experience will be but graffiti on the walls of time. Before that reckoning moment, however, both your ministry and mine will unfold in the grim but also glorious circumstances of the last days. Yes, there will be wrenching polarization on this planet, but also the remarkable reunion with our colleagues in Christ from the city of Enoch. Yes, nation after nation will become houses divided, but more and more unifying houses of the Lord will grace this planet. Yes, Armageddon lies ahead but so does Adam on Diamond. Meanwhile, did not Jesus tell us what to expect by way of heat in the final summer? Did he not also say that he would prove our faith and patience by trial?
did he not provide needed proportion when he spoke of the comparative few who will find the narrow way leading to the straight gate? Did he not also say that his saints, scattered upon all the face of the earth, would in the midst of wickedness, commotion, and persecution be armed with righteousness and with the power of God? For he is determined to have a pure people. His work proceeds forward almost as if in the comparative calmness of the eye center of the storm. First he reigns in the midst of his saints, soon in all the world. So as the shutters of human history begin to close, as if before a gathering storm, and as events scurry across the human scene like so many leaves before a wild wind, those who stand before the warm glow of the gospel fire can be permitted a shiver of the soul. Yet in our circle of certitude, we know, even in the midst of all these things, that there will be no final frustration of God's purposes. God has known all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. Humbly, therefore, I promise to go whithersoever I am sent, striving to speak the words he would have me say, and acknowledging in the tremblings of my soul that I cannot fully be his special witness unless my life is fully special. I close with pleadings from the hymn, O Divine Redeemer, which pleadings are my pleadings. Ah, turn me not away, receive me, Though unworthy, hear thou my cry. Behold, Lord, my distress. Thy pity show in my deep anguish. Shield me in danger. O regard me, O divine Redeemer. Grant me pardon and remember not. Remember not, O Lord, my sins. Help me. O Divine Redeemer, in the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Sister Watkins, that singing from your beautiful chorus was truly outstanding. The young ladies looked like they enjoyed it. The young men appeared as though they wished they were somewhere else. <laughs> so it has ever been. Not long ago, a visitor asked me the question, what is there to see when I'm here in Salt Lake City? Almost instinctively, I suggested a tour of Temple Square, maybe a look at the open pit copper mine at Bingham. I even suggested a drive up one of the nearby canyons and a swim in the Great Salt Lake. I think that a fear of being misunderstood, however, kept me from suggesting to him have you considered spending an hour or two in one of our local cemeteries? I didn't reveal to him that wherever I travel, I attempt to pay a visit to the cemetery. I find that it's a time of reflection, of contemplation on the meaning of life and the certainty of death. In that little tiny cemetery at Santa Clara, Utah, an equally tiny town, 
I noted a preponderance of Swiss names on the weathered tombstones. I calculated that those individuals had left their verdant Switzerland and in response to the call, come to Zion, had settled the little communities where they now rest in peace. They endured spring floods, summer drought, scant harvest, back-breaking labors. I believe they left a legacy of sacrifice. The largest cemeteries and the ones which evoke the most tender of emotions are honored as the resting places of those men who, while wearing the uniform of their country, died in that cauldron of conflict we know as war. One thinks of vanished hopes, shattered dreams, grief-filled hearts, and lives cut short by the sharp scythe of war. Acres and acres of neat white crosses mark the cemeteries of France and Belgium, reminding one of the terrible toll of World War I. In fact, the city of Verdun, France, is itself a virtual cemetery. For each spring, the blade of the farmer's plow turns skyward, a bit of a rusted helmet here or a twisted gun barrel there, grim reminders of the millions upon millions of men who literally soaked the soil with the blood of their lives. A visit to Punchbowl Military Cemetery in Hawaii or perhaps the Military Cemetery Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Manila brings one to an awareness that all who died in World War II do not rest in fields of quiet green. Many of them slipped beneath the waves of the very oceans on which they served and on which they died. Among the many thousands who gave their lives at Pearl Harbor was a sailor by the name of William Ball of Fredericksburg, Iowa. What distinguished him from the many others who perished on that fateful day in December of 1941 was not any particular act of heroism, but the tragic chain of events which his death set in motion back home in nearby Waterloo, Iowa. When his friends, the Sullivan brothers, heard of the passing of their buddy, they marched out together and enlisted in the Navy, determined to avenge the death of their friend. They requested permission of the Navy if they could serve together, and their request was honored. But then on November 14th of 1942, the cruiser on which the five Sullivan brothers served, the USS Juno, was hit and sunk in action, a terrible battle, off Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands. Two months were to pass before Mrs. Thomas Sullivan received the news. And when it came, it came not by the usual telegram, but by special envoy. All five, can you imagine, all five of her sons were reported missing in action in the South Pacific and presumed dead. Their bodies were never recovered. One line only, spoken by one person only, provides a fitting epitaph. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life 
for his friends. Frequently, the life of one person and its impact on the lives of others is not spoken of and rarely known. Such is the example of a teacher of girls, 12-year-old beehive girls in Mutual. Oh, my, how the teacher loved them. She had no children of her own, though she and her husband dearly longed for children, so she showered her affections upon her special girls, to whom she taught gospel truths and living lessons of life. And then tragedy struck. Illness came, followed by death and the passing of the teacher, just 27 years of age. Her special girls determined that each Memorial Day they would make a pilgrimage of prayer to the grave of their teacher. First there were seven, then there were four, then two, and eventually just one who makes that annual pilgrimage, each year placing a hand-picked bouquet of iris by the headstone of her teacher, a symbol of heartfelt gratitude. This year marked the 25th consecutive Memorial Day that she has visited the grave of her teacher. Today she herself is a teacher of girls. Little wonder that she's so successful. She mirrors the reflection of that teacher from whom came her inspiration. And I should like to testify that the life that teacher lived and the lessons that teacher taught are not buried beneath that headstone, but they live on in the personality she helped to shape and the lives she so selflessly enriched. One thinks of another teacher, the master teacher. Once with his finger in the sand, he wrote a message. Now the winds of time have long since erased the words that he wrote, but not the life that he lived. All that we know about those whom we have loved and lost, wrote Thornton Wilder, is that they would have us remember them with an increased realization of their reality. The greatest gift that the living can give the dead is not grief, but gratitude. Just two years ago, in the peaceful little Heber Valley east of Salt Lake City, a loving father, a devoted mother, returned to that haven called home and found their three eldest sons lay dead. The night had been bitter cold, and the wind was fierce as it whipped the snow from the roof, covering the chimney, thereby releasing deadly carbon monoxide fumes throughout the house. I shall ever remember attending the funeral services of the Keller boys. The entire community had placed aside their daily activities. Children were excused from school that all might come and pay their respects. As long as time and memory endure, I shall remember the scene of those three shiny caskets, followed by grief-stricken parents and grandparents, slowly making their way to the front of the chapel. The first speaker was the local high school wrestling coach. He spoke of Lewis, the oldest boy. He said that he was not the best wrestler on the team, but that no one tried harder. He said that what he lacked in native ability, he made up in determination of heart.
The next speaker, a youth leader, spoke of Travis. He described him as exemplary in the Aaronic priesthood, in scouting, in school, a model to follow. And finally, a tall, obviously intelligent, dignified elementary school teacher spoke of Jason, the youngest. She described him as quiet, even shy. And then, without embarrassment, she said that the most beautiful letter she had ever received, she had received, came from Jason. In the scrawl of a boy, he had penned a message consisting of just three words, I love you. She could scarcely continue, so near to the surface were her emotions. Through the tears and the sorrow of that day, eternal lessons were learned. I noted that a wrestling coach had made a determination that he would look beyond outward ability. He would gaze upon the heart of every boy. I noted that a youth leader would make certain that all the young men and the young women would have the full program of the Church. And I watched that elementary school teacher. She just looked at the little boys and girls like we have before us today, classmates of Jason. They had just concluded singing, I am a child of God. She could not speak. But her eyes reflected the message of her soul. And that message was this, As long as life endures, I promise that every boy and every girl with whom I have any contact will be aided in his or her quest for truth, will be guided in the development of God-given talents, and indeed will be introduced to the wonderful world of service. And the audience, including Elders Marvin J. Ashton and Thomas S. Monson, we won't be the same either, for we made a pledge that we would live closer to God. Our inspiration, those Keller boys whose mortal missions had been concluded, and the fortitude of their parents who seemed to exemplify, we will trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not to our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge Him, knowing that He will direct our path. With permission of Sister Keller, I should like to read to you a letter which she sent to me. To me, it's very touching. We do have days and nights that right now seem so overwhelming. The change in our home life has been so drastic. With almost half our family gone, how the cooking and the washing and even the shopping are different. We miss the noise and the clutter, the teasing and the playing together. Such are gone. Sunday is so quiet. We miss seeing the sacrament blessed and passed by our sons. Sunday was truly our family together day. We ponder the thought, no missions, no weddings, no grandchildren. We would not ask for their return, but we could not say we would ever have willingly given them up. We have returned to our Church duties and our family responsibilities. Our desire is to so live that the Keller family will be a forever family. To the Kellers, to the Sullivans, to all who have loved and lost, may I declare the witness of my soul and the testimony of my heart, the experience of my life, 
I should like to do so. We all know that we lived in a spirit world with our Heavenly Father before we came to earth, and then we were born into mortality, here to obtain a body, to gain experience. Some live but a moment in mortality, while others live long upon the land. The true measure is not how long we live, but how well we live. And then comes death and that next chapter on our eternal journey. Let me tell you about that chapter. Years ago, I stood by the bedside of a young man, a father of two, as he hovered between now and eternity. He turned to me and, in a pleading tone, said to me, Bishop, where does my spirit go when I die? I sought heavenly inspiration. I noted a book resting on the nightstand by his bed. I picked it up, and as I stand before you here today, that book opened to the 40th chapter of Alma, and I read, Now, my son, here is somewhat more I would say unto thee, for I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. My young friend closed his eyes, whispered a quiet thank you, relaxed the grip on my hand, and silently slipped away to that paradise about which we had spoken. After paradise comes the resurrection, that glorious resurrection, when spirit and body shall be united, never again to be separated. As the Master said to the grieving Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And to his disciples he comforted, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. This prophetic promise was fulfilled when Mary and the other Mary approached the tomb to care for the body of the Lord. They were astonished when they found that the huge stone at the entrance of the tomb had been rolled away. Gone was the body of the Lord Jesus. They beheld two angels and heard the divine pronouncement why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. This is the clarion call of Christendom, the reality of the resurrection, 
brings that peace which surpasses understanding. It comforts those whose loved ones rest in Flanders fields or who slip beneath the angry deep or who are at peace in tiny cemeteries like Santa Clara, Utah or peaceful Heber Valley. It is a universal truth. As the least of his disciples, may I raise my voice and declare to you my solemn testimony that death has been overcome, victory over the tomb has been won. How I pray that those three words, made sacred by him who fulfilled them, will find lodgment in every heart. Love them, cherish them, honor them. He is risen. Oh, this would be my prayer, and I ask it, In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the 17th chapter of St. John, it is recorded that as Jesus prayed to the Father in behalf of his disciples, he said, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. In his prayer, Jesus made it perfectly clear that the eleven disciples knew him to be the Son of God. He had taught them who he was and that he had sent, been sent from his Father, that they had uh, received a witness in, this, in their hearts and souls to the truth of his teachings is made clear in the following statement by John. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him, I have manifested that thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world, thine they were, and thou hast given them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. By receiving the Savior's message and accept, accepting him for what he was and is, the apostles obtained eternal life. This knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ is the most important knowledge in the universe. It is the knowledge without which the prophet Joseph Smith said no man could be saved. 
the lack of it is the ignorance referred to in the revelation wherein it is written, it is impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. We should keep in mind that there is more than one source of knowledge. There's the knowledge obtainable between man's normal sensory, through man's normal sensory organs. Such knowledge should be sought after. The Lord has commanded us to get all of such knowledge we can in this manner. There is also knowledge of divine things which comes through direct revelation, religious knowledge it is sometimes spoken of. And there are two aspects to the religious knowledge. One of them concerns the great story, the store of religious knowledge which we have in the scriptures. Ever since the beginning, from Father Adam's time until now, the Lord has given through his prophets, by revelation, religious knowledge. Such knowledge concerns the verities of life, it deals with God and his beloved Son, the great gospel plan, and the mission of Jesus as Savior and Redeemer. The other aspect to religious knowledge is the personal witness available through inspiration, a form of revelation which comes to each individual. The whole world has access to the revealed word of God as it is recorded in the Bible, and the whole world could have access to the revealed religious knowledge recorded in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Prize. Millions of people who read and, uh, and study the Bible do not understand it. Millions do not understand what Jesus said in the prayer recorded in the 17th chapter of St. John from which our theme is taken. The reason they do not understand it is because their understanding has not been enlightened by the power of the Holy Ghost. They have not received a personal witness. To know God, our Eternal Father, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent, one must, as did the apostles of old, learn of them through the process of divine revelation. One must be born again. Let me give you an illustration from the recorded teachings of the Savior as to what I mean. In the third chapter of St. John, it is written that Nicodemus, a very wise man, in fact a member of the Sanhedrin, came to see Jesus by night. He did not yet have enough courage to come and see him during the daytime, but he came by to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. 
In this statement, Nicodemus unwittingly but certainly revealed the fact that he did not know who Jesus was. All, all he could see in the Son of God was a great teacher. This was all he could be expected to see, however, because he based his knowledge of who Jesus was upon what he'd seen and heard of the Master's miracles. Receiving, perceiving this, Jesus informed him that the knowledge of divine things come not, can, uh, could not be had through man's normal senses. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, said Jesus. Although Nicodemus was wise in the things of the world, he could not understand this simple statement of truth. As a matter of fact, his answer revealed amazement. How can a man be born when he is old, he said. Can he enter in the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus still persisting in his efforts to get him to understand, continued, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Here we have the Savior saying that the kingdom of God can neither be seen nor entered except one be born again. But Nicodemus still could not understand. Jesus then stated the great law, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that is, that which we learn through our normal senses has to do with this earth. And that which is born of the spirit, he said, is spirit. The things that we learn through the process of inspiration are of God, of the spirit. Everyone who would know God, the Eternal Father, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, must receive such knowledge by the Spirit. Church members have, of course, been through the process. They have been baptized, confirmed members of the Church, and have had hands laid upon their heads for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Through these ordinances, the door is unlocked. Submission to this is absolutely essential to rebirth. But to obtain life eternal, one must, be, must so humble and purify himself that he, in fact, receives, through the power of the Holy Ghost, a personal witness that God is his eternal Father, and that Jesus Christ is God's Son and our personal Savior, as well as the Redeemer of the world. Let me give you an illustration. It's personal to my family, but it makes the point, so I hope you will pardon my use of it. My wife was reared in a home where they had prayer night and morning. 
where almost daily they discussed gospel principles around the family hearth. She loved education, however, and she wanted to go to college. Her father, however, thought college was for boys. In her struggle for an education, she developed a rather awesome attitude toward people who had been through college. As a member of a state Sunday school board in the Idaho Fall in Idaho Falls, she taught a class. There came to the class a non-member of the church, the wife of one of the brethren of the board. This woman had received from the University of Idaho a college degree. My wife, having not yet received her degree, was a little timid in the presence of this woman. One of the lessons in the course dealt with the first vision of the Prophet Joseph Smith. As she made her preparation for the lesson, there came into her mind the realization that this non-member would be present in the class. This realization was followed by the question, what will she think of me, a, an ignorant girl, saying that the father and the son actually came down from heaven and appeared before a 14-year-old boy. The thought terrified her, and she concluded that she couldn't do it. She went to her mother, crying, and said, Mother, I can't teach this lesson. I don't know that Joseph Smith saw the father and the son. I know I have been taught it all through my life by you and Father. I have believed you, but personally, I don't know it. This woman will ridicule me. I just can't stand up before the class with this woman present and teach this lesson. Now, her mother had not been to school very much. She was not an educated person by the world's standards, but she had faith in God and the Eternal Father and in Jesus Christ, his Son. And she said to her daughter, What did Joseph Smith do to get that vision? Well, she answered, He prayed. Why don't you do that, she said to her daughter. This young girl then returned to her room, and there, for the first time in her life, in fact, she went to the Almighty with a sincere desire to know whether he lived and whether he and the Savior actually appeared to the Prophet Joseph. Coming out of that room, she went to her Sunday school class and taught that lesson with joy, with knowledge, with conviction. She had been born of the Spirit. She knew. Now, my beloved brethren and sisters, everyone has to have a spiritual experience to gain eternal life, to know God, the Eternal Father, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. 
I plead with you to seek this knowledge. If you don't already have that knowledge, you know the way now. It is not a mass experience. It must come to each individual. It must come to you. It must come to those whom you teach. We must teach by the Spirit. And if ye receive not the Spirit, ye shall not seek, said the Savior. The Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith. You who have been baptized have the right to it. Desire it. Pray for it. Work for it. And God will give it to you that you may each receive that knowledge of God the Eternal Father and Jesus Christ whom we, he has sent which is to have to know which is eternal life. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. From around the world, this season of the year, come thousands of people who gather at what has become known as the Crossroads of the West for a conference of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Many years have passed since settlers came in covered wagons into this valley in the top of the Rockies. Conference was an important occasion in their day, and it continues to be a, a significant occasion in ours as people of faith and devotion come together to renew and strengthen that faith. Conference time is a season of spiritual revival when knowledge and testimony is increased and solidified that God lives and blesses those who are faithful. It is a time when an understanding that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God is burned into the hearts of those who have the determination to serve him and keep his commandments. Conference is the time when our leaders give us inspired direction in the conduct of our lives, a time when souls are stirred and resolutions are made to be better husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, more obedient sons and daughters, better friends and neighbors. As we enter into the spirit of conference, another feeling comes to us, one of deep gratitude that we have been blessed by an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it has been restored to earth in this dispensation of time. We mix with others from around the world who have that same feeling and we wish that men and women everywhere could understand and find the joy and peace that comes from the knowledge that all people are children of God and therefore brothers and sisters, literally, actually, 
And in fact, regardless of race, color, language, or religious belief, turning to the scriptures, we read, And he inviteth them to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God. We are reminded as we participate in conference of the deep commitment we have to our fellow men, our brothers and sisters throughout the world. It is a commitment to share with them a gift that has come to us and the greatest gift we could give to them, an understanding of the fullness of the gospel. We are committed to declare to all the world that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of mankind, that he has paid for our sins by his atoning sacrifice, that he has risen from the dead, and that he lives today. Our responsibility is to help the people of the world understand the true nature of our Father in heaven that he is a personal God, a loving Father, and one to whom each of us may go with our problems and concerns. We who are met here today claim a special unique knowledge of the Savior's gospel. Most striking of all, to those who first become acquainted with us, is our declaration to the world that we are guided by a living prophet of God, one who communicates with, is inspired by, and receives revelation from the Lord. How do we know such things are true? We know because God has spoken in our time, in our day. The heavens have opened. God has communed to man, communicated his word to man. Eternal truths have been given to the world from the Father of us all. God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son have appeared to and have talked with men in this dispensation. In fact, the Lord has appeared on numerous occasions. We know that our Father in heaven loves us and is concerned about our spiritual and temporal welfare, and, knows, and we know that His Son, Jesus Christ, our elder brother, has provided a way for us to return to the presence of God, that there is a divine purpose for our being here on earth, that we have a work to do which is imp an important part of his plan. 
In addition, we know many details of that plan and have received specific direction about our, our responsibilities. For those who hear our message and wonder how we can claim to know such things that may appear to some to be beyond logic or proof, we answer by a statement written by Paul to the Church in Corinth. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, except he has the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The learning and wisdom of the earth and all that is temporal comes to us through our physical senses in earthly, temporal ways. We touch, we see, we hear, and taste, and smell, and learn. However, spiritual knowledge, as Paul has said, comes to us in a spiritual way from its spiritual source. And Paul continues, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. We have found and know that the only way to gain spiritual knowledge is to approach our Father in heaven through the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. When we do this, and if we are spiritually prepared, we see things our eyes have not previously seen, and we hear things we may not have previously heard. The things which God hath prepared, using Paul's words. These things we receive through the Spirit. We believe and testify to the world that communication with our Father in heaven and direction from the Lord is available today 
we testify that God speaks to man as he did in the days of the Savior and in the Old Testament times. We would say to the world, listen to and weigh the words of this conference. Consider the direction and counsel that comes from those who speak. And then, after prayerful pondering, that sweet, warm conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit will testify to you of its truthfulness. Let me read to you the words of the Lord spoken through one of his prophets. God is merciful unto all who believe on his name. Therefore he desireth in the first place that ye should believe, yea, even on his word. If ye will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if you can do more, no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. Now we will compare the word unto a seed, he said. Now, if ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, or if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, that ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts, and when you feel these swelling motions, ye will begin to say within yourselves, It must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good. For it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. To you who are seeking or questioning the great purposes of life, to you who are wondering why we are here on earth and what the Lord would have us accomplish while we are here, we would say, as a modern-day prophet has said, Let no man treat these things lightly or doubtingly, but let every man seek earnestly to understand the truth and teach his children to become familiar with those truths of heaven which have been restored to the earth in the latter days. It is an honor to be in the service of the Lord, to be commissioned by him to declare to the world that his kingdom is here on the earth, available to all who will listen to his message accept his gospel, and follow his commandments. We know that this work will continue to roll forth, as the prophet Joseph Smith said, till it has penetrated every continent, 
visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every year till the purposes of God shall be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. Of these things I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our son has a small toy robot. It can walk and perform other simple functions. Should it fall, it can with some difficulty right itself. It performs its programmed functions mechanically without feeling. It has no capacity to grow or to alter its destined course. It responds immediately to any external force that satisfies its needs and ceases to function when its internal spring is spent. Satan would have all of the children of Father in Heaven behave like robots. How different is the plan of the Lord? Consider the birth of an infant, an independent spirit created by God and matured in the preexistence, is tabernacled in a body of flesh and bones. A mother and father participate with God in this sacred experience. These parents love, guide, and inspire the growing child. With proper understanding of and obedience to the teachings of the Savior, the child learns precept upon precept and by practice of truth is converted into a self-reliant, loving, serving son or daughter of God whose potential for growth and accomplishment is limitless, whose destiny of fully obedient is to return to the presence of God to partake of His glory and to share in His exalted work. Such an individual can have complete happiness in this life as well. Mortal life is a proving ground. God said, we will make an earth whereon these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith, to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Our proving grounds vary. Some of us are born with physical limitations. Others are lonely or do not enjoy good health. Some are challenged by economic conditions, the lack of good parental example or a myriad of other things that test our mettle. While much of the pain and sorrow we endure is the result of our own stubborn acts of disobedience, many of the things that appear to be obstacles in our path are used by a loving Creator for our own personal growth. Life never was intended to be easy, rather a period of proving and of growth. It is interwoven with difficulties and challenges and burdens. We are immersed in a sea of persistent worldly pressures that could destroy our happiness, yet these very forces, if squarely faced, provide opportunity for tremendous personal growth and development. The conquering of adversity produces strength of character, forges self-confidence, engenders self-respect, and assures success in righteous endeavor. 
One who exercises free agency by faith grows from challenges, is purified by sorrow, and lives at peace. In contrast, one who frantically seeks to satisfy appetite and worldly desire is driven in a downward spiral to tragic depths. Temptation is the motivating influence in his exercise of free agency. Some of us at one time or another let the pressures of life or the false teaching of men cloud our vision. But when we see with clarity, the difference between the plan of God and that of Satan is unmistakable. Satan would convert divinely independent spirits into creatures bound by habit, restricted by appetite, and enslaved by transgression. He has never deviated from his intent to enslave and destroy. He would persuade us to improperly use the divine gift of free agency. Through subtle, tempting influence, he encourages us to gratify desire for personal power and influence or to succumb to appetite. He progressively binds those that would follow carnal desire. Unless they repent, they are effectively converted into robots who no longer exercise control over their eternal destiny. He cleverly confuses some until they depict God as an exacting, harsh judge or a distant deity devoted to meticulous scorekeeping. God is neither. He is a patient, understanding Father, deeply interested in our personal welfare, anxious for our happiness, and totally committed to our eternal progression. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his Son into the world not for God not sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our happiness on earth as well as our eternal salvation requires many correct decisions, no one of which is difficult to make. Together they forge a character resistant to the eroding influences that surround us. Noble character is like a treasured porcelain made of select raw materials, formed with faith, carefully crafted by consistent righteous acts, and fired in the furnace of uplifting experience. It is an object of great beauty and priceless worth, yet it can be broken in a moment through transgression. When protected by self-control, righteous character will endure for eternity. We must cultivate true humility, not the ability to appear humble, but the sacred gift of true humility. Humility is the precious soil, fertile soil of righteous character. It germinates the seeds of personal growth. When cultivated through the exercise of faith, pruned by repentance, and fortified by obedience and good works, such seeds produce the cherished fruit of spirituality. Divine inspiration and power then result. Inspiration is to know the will of the Lord, 
power is the capability to accomplish that inspired will. Such power comes from God after we have done all we can do. May I share these introspective thoughts of an individual that found the path to happiness? I am truly, deeply loved of the Lord. He will do all that I permit him to do for my happiness. The key to unlock that power is myself. While others will counsel, suggest, exhort, and urge, the Lord has given me the responsibility and the agency to make the basic decisions for my happiness and eternal progress. As I read and ponder the scriptures and with deep faith earnestly seek my Father in prayer, peace envelops my being. With sincere repentance and obedience to the commandments of God, coupled with genuine concern for and service to others, fear is purged from my heart. I am conditioned to receive and to interpret divine aid given to mark my path with clarity. No friend, bishop, stake president, or in general authority can do this for me. It is my divine right to do it for myself. I have learned to be at peace and to be happy. I know I will have a rewarding, productive, meaningful life. This individual is not a robot enslaved by adversity, nor need we be as we wisely use our free agency to follow the teachings of the Savior. With all the love of my heart, I extend an invitation to all to a fullness of an understanding of the plan of happiness and exaltation provided by the Savior. I testify that its fullness is found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I love you and ask you to seek that fullness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.